Hey everybody, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. My name is Michael Levan and I'm joined today with Christina Devachko and we're going to be talking about day zero Kubernetes. Uh, Christina and I were chatting about this for a minute or two right before and I originally thought maybe it had something to do with like day one ops, day two ops, but I think it's something a little bit different. So this podcast episode is definitely going to be something of interest, I think, to just everybody working in the cloud. Christina, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited uh, for uh, uh, being here and talking to you about that. It was really cool to hear that you were actually wondering what that is. So I hope that this can be beneficial for everyone as well. Uh, I'm doing doing really great and really excited uh, for our discussion today. Very cool. And this is, uh, unfortunately, this is an audio only podcast because I'm looking at your background right now. And it's, it's, it's cool. I, I feel like I need to step my game up a little bit. With, with my background. So we'll compete. <laughs> I think your background is looking also very awesome. It seems like both of us like neon lights at, it, at least. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, it's funny, like the lights back here that you can see they're um, they're actually outside lights. Like they're, they're lights meant for like the outside of your house. So I was like, Oh, I was like, let's give them a shot. And they're actually not as bright as you would think for the outside of your house. But Anyways, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much That's for cool. joining. That's the uh, most important thing. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Appreciate it. Cool. So, okay. Tell me about day zero Kubernetes. Because again, like, you know, we hear a lot, like, in, in my opinion, day one, right? Because you hear day two ops, day one ops, not trying to get too buzzwordy here. But, um, you know, day one is like, I'm getting my cluster up. I'm getting the automation in place. I'm running the automation. It's, it, my cluster is good to go. Day two is like, okay, now my cluster is up. How do I upgrade it? How do I manage it? How do I monitor it? How do I set up observability? So what is day zero? Yeah, day zero actually is not a term that I have come up with by myself. It has always been there, but I don't think it has been spoken about much uh, in the community. Like in general, I hear also a lot about day one and even more about day two, like when you have all your uh, applications running in Kubernetes clusters in production and all, and then you kind of deliver the full responsibility over to operations, then uh, issues may happen and it's important to like spread awareness of what you should think about and how you should maintain those clusters in production. But day zero was something uh, I've been through in one of the projects and we have learned things the hard way and we even had to roll back when it went out in production. We thought it was ready, but it was not. And we had to roll back and kind of reiterate, get back to the table and, th and see what, what shall we do here. And I realized that if we knew several of those things beforehand when we were actually started thinking about it. Okay, do we have everything in place? Like, is, are our applications ready to start actually adopting Kubernetes? It would be, we would have spared more time and cost uh, beforehand than after it's out in production. And we realized that, okay, on the production scale, it's not that ready as we thought. And for me, that is day zero. Like there is a lot of documentation out there, uh, official documentation, but it's a lot, it's extremely overwhelming, especially if you don't have in-house experts in Kubernetes, you try to, to learn it yourself, it's a lot. So it could be nice to like know, okay, what are the most important things, especially for managed Kubernetes service uh, that cloud providers offer? 
it's still a shared responsibility. It's not a software as a service solution, right? It's not, uh, it's even, not even a platform as a service solution in some cases. So you need to understand what you're responsible for and those areas you're responsible for, how much does it actually take from you to be able to kind of secure and maintain those areas properly at a good production ready level? So that's day zero for me. Got it. Okay, that's that's interesting. It, it's funny because like I don't think I've ever heard the term day zero. Um, oh. Yeah. No, that's so weird because like. The way that you're explaining, like, I, 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 of course, understand what you're explaining, but like, I just haven't heard that term. So that's interesting. Okay. And maybe I'm just like living under a rock or something. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, uh, that, uh, that is not, I don't think that's very surprising for me to hear actually, because I don't think there are many like videos or sessions or documents in general that are talking about like day zero for Kubernetes or maybe in the context of Kubernetes. But if you think in general about like software development or developing technical platforms, then uh, I think if you even Google it, you can easily see that the, this is this is a term and this, uh, the day zero kind of goes to the design and planning phase of the whole adoption and implementation process. Got it. So it's it, it sounds like really what it is, is it's not, it's the design phase of what your yeah. environment's going to look like, but also it's the, okay, there's a lot of docs out here. These Microsoft TechNet pages are 30, 30 pages long, it seems like, right? We got to go through this. We got to watch this course, that course. Instead, day zero is like, what do we need to get up and running efficiently? That's it. Yeah. Give me the information that I need to get up and running. I don't need anything extra. I just need to know what direction I need to go in. Yeah. And, and for example, also thinking about security, which I think has become, uh, it, it has always been crucial, but I think it was also not, there are many points that uh, many organizations or teams who start adopting it not necessarily are aware of. Like take Azure Kubernetes service, for instance. By default, its API server is exposed publicly by default with default configuration. So if how would you know that? Uh, how would you know how to think about it or to test it? You just can assume that, it, that it's secure with default setup, but it actually is not. And it's your responsibility to ensure that it is. So that's when it would be nice to have these highlights and bullet points and learnings from others to work with. Interesting. Yeah, no. And, and I totally agree, especially just like when it comes to security and security in general is a mess, right? There's, you know, <laughs> there's no, there's no statistics here, but like, you know, I, at least in the environments that I've worked in, it's like for every 50 to hundred developers, there's one person focused on security. Like security is never the, mm. the focus point for a lot of organizations and especially for Kubernetes. Cause I feel like, you know, from 2020 to 2022, a lot of people were just trying to figure it out, like trying mm. to get it up and running, trying to learn it, trying to get it deployed. And then like it was deployed and then everybody's like, oh, now what? Well, we have to focus on, you know, these million other things to keep it up and running. Uh, mm. One of the most important pieces is security. And it's funny that you bring up the AKS bit because I was uh, I was teaching an O'Reilly course yesterday and it was the it was my first live session on 
Kubernetes security. It was, it's a new course that I'm doing. And that is one of the things that I brought up. I was bringing up like public IP addresses and I was showing in the Azure portal, like you got to go, like if, if you do this in Terraform, it's one thing if you do it in code, but like, let's say you're like, you're deploying in the Azure portal or whatever, like you got to go and you got to click a button to be like, don't, don't, don't give me a public IP address. Um, and it's crazy because like one of the best practices is like, don't have your control plane sitting publicly. Um, hmm unless you need it for a specific purpose, but like, otherwise it should be behind, it should be behind a VPN or, you know, something of that fashion. Um, so yeah, it's weird. Like there's, there's no security defaults, but I, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. Right. Um, <laughs> thinking about Kubernetes manifest, Kubernetes manifests are just like long YAML or JSON. It, mm. It could be incredibly complex. You can have 500 lines depending on what you're deploying, right? Um, and people look at it and they say, oh, well, why isn't there a better way to do this? Why, isn't, why doesn't Kubernetes give us a better way to do this? And it's because it's not the job of Kubernetes, right? The job of Kubernetes mm. is to schedule, orchestrate, self-heal. Pretty much it, right? That's the gist of, mm. of a container orchestrator in general, whether it's Swarm, whether Mesos, Snowmad, whatever. Um, the, the, that's the whole idea there. So, you know, mm. and, and then that's where I'll play devil's advocate where it's like, it should be like, things should be secure by default, but it's, it, it almost can't be expected because it's like not its job. You know, it's like, no. you, you, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, um, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure if it's in the documentation itself, but in general, I think Kubernetes, if you read like the discussions regarding Kubernetes and security, it states that Kubernetes initially, its goal was not to be created like with super security, secure configurations by default. Its purpose was totally different, like what you say to scale, to self-heal, but security is kind of the responsibility of consumers to ensure that if the containers you're running are secure, that the network is secure, that uh, the, all, like the workloads and everything is properly secured. And I think it's unlike following all the different reports that come out regarding like the open publicly exposed Kubernetes API servers worldwide. And it's like, uh, like recent one was from October 2022, there was a, um, a Red Hunt Labs, I think the organization was called, and they, they have created a tool, like a Kubestalk, uh, it, it's called, that scans, like uh, the, you can provide it an IP range and it can just scan for the publicly exposed clusters. And they found like more than 500,000 clusters worldwide. And in different reports, it varies from three to 900,000 clusters that are publicly exposed. And that's, that's scary. In my opinion, <laughs> yeah, it, you know it's funny. Um, there's this one website. I don't know if you have ever seen it. It's called Shodan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I'll sometimes just go on there just to be like, what's sitting <laughs> public? Um, I'll, I'll always remember this. Years ago, I we were having a big issue at work. Um, one of our Active Directory servers was just like getting slammed, and we couldn't figure out why. And somebody was like, "Is it public facing?" And we ended up going on Shodan and it was like, yep, it's up, it's public facing. So like, for whatever reason, somebody made this Active Directory server public and it was, yeah, so. Jeez. Yeah, and it's, you know, people think like, 
you know, oh, well, if you have proper RBAC, if you have proper authentication and authorization, um, if, if your, if your login methods and your OIDC methods are like up to snuff, you're fine if you set it public, but that's not the case. Like no, people don't have to log into a server to jeopardize it. Right. Mm. Like that's the definition of a DDoS attack is like, they're not logging in. Like they're just hitting it mm. constantly, 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 constantly. And you know, I don't know. I haven't personally seen that done with a public facing Kubernetes cluster. Um, but like, there's no reason why it couldn't happen the same way. Um, but I guess it depends. Cause like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess we all kind of don't know how like Azure, AWS, GCP, how like they're scaling the control plane, how many they're using yada, yada. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty insane. Um, like I said, like I, I, I truly believe that the reason why security is such a nightmare right now in Kubernetes in general and containerization in general is because everybody's still just like trying to figure it out. Like everybody's like, yeah. how do I get this thing up and running like properly? Um, and then once it's up and running properly, it's like, oh, okay, well now we have a million issues and we got to go back and backtrack eight months anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But it's also, you know, like it's not it's not only about that potential malicious actors may not be able to do much. Uh, I guess it depends on the motivation as well and on the sources you have and the funding and all. But it's also about the attack surface, right? Why leave it and keep it publicly exposed and make your attack surface larger? Because they can just, you know, ping those uh, ping those IPs and find, and you, what you get back is like typically unauthenticated, for example, a 401. It gives the malicious actors information about that this is an active resource. I can start working further with it and see where I get, where it gets me. So this is also like about minimizing the potential amount of attack vectors for your organization and your systems. But I also see like that it's also about figuring out for the security experts in the organization because well if you have an in-house security expert from before and then you adopt container containers and kubernetes security experts don't necessarily have a deep enough knowledge about containers and kubernetes and what it requires in terms of security from before so for them it also is needed to like to understand what it is to get an understanding of that. And it's not given that these people necessarily have much knowledge from before. Uh, and that's why they would need help from platform engineers, from architects, from developers to understand what this means and what are the possibilities uh, in addition to kind of them who need to also dig into it and use some time to understand how it works. Right. It's interesting you make an incredibly valid point and you're 100% correct. There's no way for these security engineers to fully understand what's happening because they're not fully working with containerization. They're not fully working with Kubernetes. Um, that, that even, you know, brings, brings it back to like, how does somebody become a security engineer? Well, typically they have X amount of years of networking experience or how do they mm. become an AppSec engineer? Well, typically they have X amount of years of application development experience. So like they understand it underneath the hood of what's going on. Um, whereas now it's like, you can't say, you know, uh, 
we need to bring somebody in that has 20 years of Kubernetes experience to be the security engineer <laughs> for it. Cause like, that's not possible. Right. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. And, and I, and, and you're absolutely right. Like the security engineers need our help to how to think about Kubernetes and how to think about containerization as a whole. Um, they can, they can follow best practices and they can say, you know, these are what the reports are saying and yada, yada. But, you know, sometimes it may not, uh, be as simple as like running a hardening guide on an Ubuntu box and like it just working as expected. Um, you know, what, one of the things that, that I'm even thinking about here is like your base container images. So for example, um, I was just running like a quick test. I forget what tool I was using. Maybe one of Aqua's tools or I forget. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just for giggles, I was scanning the Nginx container image. And this is like an official container image in Docker Hub. And it had security vulnerabilities. Mm. So like, and that's all of them. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not even picking, I'm not even attempting to pick on Nginx. It's just all of them. Mm. Like all of them have something, whether it's a low severity or a high severity, like there's always something there. So then the question becomes like, so, you know, what, what we were just talking about was essentially the shared responsibility model, right? Like you, you can't rely mm. on the cloud providers to secure your networks. Um, you can't rely on Kubernetes to just be secure, right? You, you have to do your part as well. But then it also mm. goes into the, what risk is too much risk? Because there's always risk, you know, mm. there's, there's always the idea of like, like there's always going to be something the the idea of security is not to remove every risk. That's not possible. The idea is to mm. uh, mitigate as much as you possibly can. Cause that's all, that's all you can do. <laughs> like, like you can't, mm. you can't like wipe out everything a hundred percent. You got to mitigate as much as possible. And the other thing too is, is that some organizations, uh, their security policies are going to be different. Like, Whereas in one, in, in one organization, it might be like, oh, this is nah, no big deal, whatever. And then in another organization, it's like, no, this is going to completely wipe out our PHI compliance or our HIPAA compliance or whatever the case yeah. may be. So I guess it also depends on just like who the organization is as well and, and what they care about. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like what you said regarding the images, this was also, uh, I had a very interesting uh, experience of my own when I was looking into uh, ASP.NET base images, like for, uh, for some of the applications and I was testing it out and then it has a huge difference depending on what kind of ASP.NET image you could choose. If you choose the absolute regular one, it has like 40, 50 plus vulnerabilities if you scan it with one of the tools. But if you choose a, another distribution which is more slimmed or based on a different mm -hmm. Linux uh, operating system, then it's suddenly down to like a few, just under 10. And it, I think it's about, it's also a very continuous process where you all the time need to evaluate what are the possibilities, what are the base images available, for example, what are the um, the availability is for me to improve uh, my uh, how my containerized application is, uh, like also running as root user by default. You also, with Nginx, you have a regular image and you have a, priv a unprivileged base mm -hmm. image, which allows you to actually run as a non-root, where this is built in by default. And uh, in some images, you can't just 
disable it and provide another user and then it does it like in sp.net based image this is not the case you can't do it because there are dependencies in there so these are things that are like that require you to all the time evaluate this continuously and see okay what makes sense something is more easier to fix than other things uh, without kind of breaking the system or breaking backwards compatibility or whatever so it's it's a continuous process i guess that's the most important part to it as well yeah it's funny that you bring that up because uh, i was showing somebody that like maybe a couple months ago where we were talking about security context and we were talking about you know you running uh the container as root versus not running it as root and i was like well you know let, let's try it so like we try it with the nginx container image and it fails and it won't it won't come up and you know the response was kind of like yeah but they have another image for this i'm like yeah but look at it from a different perspective some 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 persons just getting you know into containers just getting into kubernetes they're reading all these best practices and they're like, oh, okay, so I can't use uh, root. So then they they deploy and they're like, oh, this doesn't work. Okay, I guess I don't have a choice. So it's also, it's like, um, how can I put it? Like, it's like a, you don't know what you don't know type of thing, right? So like that mm. kind of makes security even harder because how do you, like, without that knowledge of, of knowing, you, like, you think that, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. So it's also the, and I think that kind of brings us back to um, the other piece of uh, day zero, where it's like having checklists, having best practices that you should be following, um, having the information that you need to get it up and running. So like, for example, hmm. t t taking that Nginx example, it's like, if somebody's implementing it, they're not going to know what they don't know. So it's kind of our job to be like, okay, here's the best practice list. Oh, you don't want to run it as root in your security context. Use this container image instead that allows you to run um, unprivileged. So it's like, mm. it, I think it definitely goes back to that as well. Like the, the security piece, the best practice piece, it all goes back to the, how can we get information to people? And I think that's, mm. that's very important as well. So uh, again, going back to like the, the, the day zero piece of giving people exactly what they need to get up and running what does that kind of look like? I mean, is that, does that mean that we're, we're telling engineers to not go deep anymore? Are we telling engineers to kind of like, not to stay high level, but it's like, you kind of, you know, you can, you can go, you can be all the way up here. You can go all the way down here. You got to come somewhere over here. So like, don't go mm. as deep into the technology, but understand it at the level of you need to run it. In this case, I think it also depends on what engineers you're talking to as well, because different, if this is a platform engineer, let's say, or someone who will be working with Kubernetes cluster specifically, that's one thing. There, you would expect that these engineers have or develop a more deeper knowledge as the development of uh, their uh, Kubernetes clusters and their platforms go. The other uh, type of engineers, like application engineers who are working just on the application, it's it would be so much cognitive load to like push all the deep 
deep knowledge on them. And suddenly, instead of just fixing something in the application or delivering a new feature in the application and fully focusing on the business value there, suddenly they need to know all that all that uh, de deployment part of things, all that, uh, all those uh, YAML manifests, understand how this works in the Kubernetes clusters. Maybe they need to log into those clusters, start debugging things. Uh, and then they suddenly need to understand how this all hangs together. And there, I think it's important also for us who are working with Kubernetes in depth to reduce the cognitive, cognitive load for those who would just like to focus on the application development to make it mm -hmm. easier for them. And this is also one of the one of the points I think it's important to take into that design phase, into this planning phase. How can we make it easier for application developers to work with application development without disrupting their flow, without making it super frustrating and complicating for them to deploy their new features or new bug fixes to, to Kubernetes. Uh, and there, for example, like we, uh, we have been working on creating blueprints on, we had like a, an automation platform from before, which we could extend to make it easier for them so that they can do what they need from the UI. Uh, and they and what's needed can be generated on the background so that they can focus on building the business value in the application itself. So here I would say it really depends on what is the purpose or what are the main tasks for that specific engineer. You know, I wish that I saw something like this in more environments, but I think the thing that kind of fixes this whole problem is is having like a high velocity team or something like that. So for example, um, and I don't know what they're called now, like maybe they're called the same thing. I'm not sure. I haven't really seen it in a long time, but the way that like a high velocity team would work is you would have like maybe four to five people and you would have like one QA person, one front end, one back end, one security person, one operations person. And all of those people on the team they would be working on a little bit of QA, a little bit of dev, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but their core focus was like their specialty. So it would be nice, especially just with the complexity of Kubernetes of like, if let's say you had a 10 person team, one or two of those people spent 70 to 80% of their time working strictly with Kubernetes and containerization. And they took that knowledge and they relate it to everybody else. Mm. that way Absolutely. you know right that way there's like the there's the people that are specializing in it but then the other people that don't need to specialize in it they're not specializing in it but they know where to go to get the information from like the people that are spending 70 to 80 percent of the time they're making the best practices for the team they're making the best practices for the organization they're putting everything together they're telling everybody how it needs to be done and then other engineers are going and doing it they know Kubernetes, they know containerization, they know what it all means. They're just not at the in-depth level as the other one or two engineers because they don't need to be. Mm. And I think this also creates opportunities for like having this very good communication with each other because if you create very isolated teams, like you have a team or resources that just work on the Kubernetes clusters on maintaining, operating, building that, they don't 
get that insight of what can be improved of what is frustrating, what is complicated, what do the other engineers and other teams need. But when you have that communication, when you have that constant interaction with the other engineers, with the other teams, you can also get feedback on, okay, this, this here is super frustrating and time consuming and uh, multiple engineers are struggling. And then those resources that are specialized in this can look into, okay, how can we improve this? Are there any tools out there that can make this easier for us, that can make this easier for the, uh, for the other engineers? So this, I do believe, can bring a lot of value. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's always the matter of getting people to sign off and yeah. <laughs> paying the salaries. <laughs> yep, it's also about the, the, the size of the organization, how much budget do they have, how much time do they have, like, you know, what can they spend time on, what can't they spend time on. It's mm. a constant trade-off process, it <laughs> feels mm. like. I think that's the unfortunate reality for uh, every job. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in these days where, uh, like many organizations, look into their budgets and uh, this constant race after cost reduction, this puts also quite a big load on the engineers. Uh, how? Because then they get a task, okay, we need to reduce costs here. Right. Prices suddenly come up for cloud services from the cloud providers. Okay, we need to look into how we need to reduce the cost. Right. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and, and where, you know, I, I feel for everybody that, that's going through all of this stuff in the tech space yeah. right now with all the layoffs and stuff, it's terrible. But, you know, a lot of people are really feeling it right now. When those engineers leave, somebody's still got to do the work. Yeah. So the engineers that are left, guess what? They're probably, they're putting in way too much time right now with uh, and not making any more money which is the unfortunate reality. So yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's, again, like you said, like that's where the uh, more efficient processes come into play, right? Like that's the, mm. it's efficient processes cannot remove the work that's needed, of course, but what they can do is they can make things far more streamlined versus everybody running around, ripping their hair out, thinking everybody has to work till 1am because if they don't the whole thing is mm. going to crash and burn and 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 you know die in a fire and that's usually not the case if everybody just takes a step back for 20 minutes mm. and just thinks okay what's the efficient process here how can we kind of get this going um so yeah no totally makes sense now before we wrap up i just want to uh hit three points here just for everybody that's listening because you know we we went pretty in depth with the conversation but day zero correct me if i'm wrong Security, planning, making sure that you know just what you need to get it done properly. Is, is that the gist, pretty much? If we would summarize it in three points, I think you have summed it up very well. And Perfect. of course, for the details, for more detailed checklist, there are many resources out there to, to help you with that. Awesome. Very cool. So Christina, where can everybody find you? If you want to plug your socials, um, if you're doing your, your blog is awesome. Um, any, any of your content, if you want to, if you want to plug any of your stuff. Yeah, you can find me basically on quite a few, <laughs> quite a few places uh, these days, but uh, my blog is uh, christhecodingunicorn.com 
it, now that I think about it, I probably should have made it shorter <laughs> than the domain, but that's how it is. That was my uh, my creative thinking at that time. So, uh, or uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just with my name and the surname and uh, Chris the Coding U one one number one in the end. That's where you can find me on Twitter. Awesome, cool. And do you have a YouTube or anything like that? No, I am. Uh, I'm more into blogging and speaking at different sessions. So if you search for my, uh, if you search for my name, you will also find a few sessions where I go more into like details around day zero, a little more, a little more detailed checklist awesome. on that side. Very cool. All right. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. And for everybody listening, thank you so much. Please go check out Christina. She's got a whole bunch of really good stuff out there. Follow her on the socials. Check out her blog all that fun stuff. Christina, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. And thanks for everyone who tuned in.